Good evening. I'm Axis. I'm Moner. And you're listening to The Late Night, a horror podcast. Happy March, everyone. If you live in North America, that means St. Patrick's Day is around the corner. And in the distilled spirit of the season, tonight, Axis and I have decided we'll watch two films that you can either drink to, or at the very least, will make you wish you were drinking. And before anybody goes thinking that we're encouraging drinking... I also drink water to many of my drinking games. You don't have to drink alcohol to have a good time. Besides, someone needs to remain sober to hold the camera steady to capture the uh, evidence. I mean, take photos. Um, First up, we'll be watching director David Keith's The Curse from 1987, starring Will Wheaton. And then we'll go on to Morgan J. Freeman's American Psycho 2 from 2002, starring Mila Kunis. Except this time, we brought our beverages with us, and every time the lead says something stupid, something we know never happens in horror movies, we will take a sip and either say, shut up Wesley, or shut up Meg. And if you're totally sloshed, or just feel like pretending to be sloshed, feel free to shout, shut up Messily and Weg, just to be safe. So, like every episode, we'll return a moment just after the tone to discuss our thoughts on the show with spoilers. And here we go. And we're back. We hope you enjoyed them. Um, So we'll start with The Curse from 1987. It's a spin on Lovecraft's The Color Out of Space, where a meteorite crashes into some farmland, shrinks into the soil, and leaves a color that contaminates the land and all its inhabitants. In The Curse, the story takes place in Tennessee instead of Massachusetts. The names are changed, and there's other differences, but the punchline is pretty much the same. Everything is contaminated by the meteorite and dies. Aside from the meteorite looking like a demonic hairball that might have been coughed up by Cthulhu, (laughs) I like that the adaption had a much more lively take on events. In short, the animals didn't become violent, the vegetation wasn't bleeding or oozing pus, it was just turning to dust. However, at the same time, in the original color out of space, we're talking about a color that everyone can see, but it's unlike any other color that's ever been seen, Uh, which is one of those times something in a book makes more sense in our heads than something on a screen. If you're a fan of Lovecraftian horror, there's another version of The Color Out of Space on the Way from director Richard Stanley, who you all probably remember as the director who did the 96 version of The Island of Dr. Moreau with Marlon Brando and Val Kilmer. So a lot of my thoughts also revolve around the original Lovecraft story that The Curse is based on, Color Out of Space, um, which was released in 1927. Um, read it last night. The most fun part was when they kept talking about things happening in the 80s, and I kept having to readjust to realize they meant 1880s. <laughs> <laughs> um, the There was kind of a disconnect, I felt, with the movie. I think what confused me most about The Curse was that there was this really confusing sense of moralization in the in the movie, because just the title itself, The Curse, seems to imply some kind of agency and reason for their suffering. It's a punishment. But the movie itself is unclear about what that is. The obvious answer, and the one that Nathan Crane turns to, is his wife Frances's infidelity. But the movie doesn't seem to cast any real aspersions on Frances, and seems much more critical of Nathan's strict puritanical behavior. But still nobody is free from the curse. Francis arguably suffers the most, while Nathan stays strong for a while before succumbing, but ultimately both meet the same fate. The movie feels like it wants to have a moral, but doesn't seem like it supports one either way. And that's part of what made me turn to the original story, because I was curious about, you know, if the original had a clear moral or something like that. 
it doesn't, is the, the spoiler-filled version of things. But as I was reading it, I thought that the original was predictably quite different from the movie, and I would say much more terrifying. It does a really different um, job of pacing the story. It's a much slower and more sinister build, with all the plants and animals changing, and still changing over a year after the meteor lands, so it's a much longer span of time, which makes the build feel spookier. I definitely understand why they changed it for the curse. Again, you know, movies in the 80s demanded a little more action than perhaps 1927 short stories. <laughs> the most puzzling choice is putting the perspective on Zack. I mean, I'm thrilled to see more Will Wheaton. I love him. He was one of my first childhood crushes watching him on Star Trek, let's be real. But the original story gives the narrator's perspective, for the most part, to um, a neighbor, a friend of the family, who keeps coming to visit the farm and hearing and seeing what's happening. And that makes the developments much more jarring because he's seeing things days at a time, weeks apart, sometimes a month since he's seen anything. And then he sees everything falling apart in this really terrifying way. And it makes more sense that he is preserved as a narrator while Zack should be so, so dead by the end, that by the time the <laughs> end of the movie rolls around. Like, there is no way that Zack is surviving based on how much contact we ha he had with everything that was going on. And, of course, there is nothing about morality in the original story. There's no infidelity, no harshness. No. And in fact, the story is really clear about the main family being great people and it being baffling why they are targeted. There's a line in the story that says, quote, it must all be a judgment of some sort, though he could not fancy what for, since he had always walked uprightly in the Lord's ways so far as he knew, end quote. The family seemed like truly innocent victims, bystanders caught up in a work of horror which I think kind of makes it scarier because there's nothing that anybody could have done, no way to stop it, no reasoning to it. It's not a punishment. It's just horror that you can't escape, which I think is what, you know, the essence of what horror is and why the original is so scary. Whereas the curse to me feels a little more, a little less clear for sure. I think it's the curse suffers from trying to say too many things, but not really saying much at all. But it's still a fun, mi mindless romp. And hey, maybe that's the point. We're all just drinking the water until we have a good time. So how did you feel about American Psycho 2? Oh boy! <laughs> American Psycho 2 gave me just so many feelings. So many feelings. None of them good. Um, <laughs> this movie, I think, has a real crown um, in that it is really delightful because I don't think I have ever seen a movie in which every single person is so incredibly unsympathetic and bad at their jobs. So much so, in fact, that I decided to rate all of them on exactly how little sympathy I have for them. So I'm just going to go through the main characters, the, one I, the ones I remember, starting off with William Shatner, Starkman, a terrible professor. He teaches incredibly basic lessons and seems happy to just watch his students argue, probably because he's too busy sleeping with all the young, hot, blonde students. Sympathy, two out of ten, entirely because of his vulnerability at his death, but he is still hot garbage. Um, Eric Daniels, the incredibly mediocre psychiatrist, probably the most sympathetic of the main characters in this movie, which says 
very little. He is constantly and consistently breaking his own code of ethics, but also not enough to be useful. It's his miscommunications with Starkman that result in several more preventable deaths before he figures things out. At the very least, his intent seems good, but he should lose his goddamn license to practice. Four out of ten. Brian. Brian, you sweet, terrible fool. <laughs> Brian... <laughs> Brian is created to be an absolute douchebag, and he is not even good at that. His whole character arc is that he is so powerful that he can get whatever he wants with all his money, and yet his most memorable line in this movie is, my cousin is going to hack the mainframe. He gets one sympathy point because of him being excited to bang Mila Kunis, and that is perhaps the only recognizable moment of real human emotion in this movie, so one out of ten. Cassandra. Poor Cassandra could have almost been a sympathetic character. She is entirely inexplicably kind to Mila Kunis, despite Mila being unfailingly rude and predictably murdering her. Cassandra also seems to truly care about her dear Bobby, so much so that I could almost look the other way on her adultery, except she is so flagrantly inconsiderate of Starkman's family, talking about how obnoxious it is that his wife and child take up so much of his time. Three out of ten for Cassandra on the sympathy scale. Now, Keith. My sweet, sweet Keith. You are the best this movie has to offer, and that is probably because we see so little of you. You're an academic high achiever who works hard and is unobtrusive. Sure, maybe you draw murder doodles in your notebook, but who hasn't? You deserved better, Keith. Eight out of ten. Then Gertie, star secretary, employee of 1999, Gertie. She's a hard worker, maybe takes too much pleasure in being mean to students, but honestly, that is very understandable for a customer service worker. You've got to take those small victories where you can get them, but still, I'm unsympathetic. Four out of ten. Michael Kremko as Bateman? Stop that. No, don't do any of those things that you did. Zero out of ten. None for you. Rachel's parents? Entirely unmemorable. Seem boring, but fine, despite her description of them as absent drunks. Unscorable because they are so unmemorable. The queen of the movie, Mila Kunis, fine, her name was Rachel, but that's also forgettable. Um, Rachel is undeniably created as the hero of this movie. The director, looking at you, Morgan J. Freeman, seems to think that we should somehow sympathize with her, and I have never done anything less than that. She is cruel, callous, self-centered, and acts like all of this dysfunction somehow makes her a cute, quirky girl. The voiceovers were torturous. Zero out of ten sympathy for Rachel. If only she had died, this might have been a good movie. Ten out of ten sympathy, however, for Mila Kunis having had to live through this. And finally, Ricky Martin. Ten out of ten, we don't deserve you. You were the true hero of this movie. For me, the cast was a group of familiar faces. Um, Mia Kunis, William Shatner, Lindy Booth. And in case um, some of you were squinting at the psychiatrist going... How do I know that guy? <laughs> um, the psychiatrist was played by Grant Wynne Davies, who was Nick Knight in the 90s vampire detective series Forever Knight. Um, as far as the story went, it felt like a slasher with scant bits of the American psycho mythos lazily plugged in. In the original, Bateman didn't die in the 80s or 90s. And if he was going to be killed, 
uh, by someone, it probably would have been Brett Easton Ellis's character, Detective Donald Kimball, uh, who is definitely not Bobby Starkman. <laughs> so from the very beginning, I was watching the film with a gigantic hole in my willing suspension of disbelief in my peripheral vision. And I'm sure that that's what anybody who had read the books uh, was doing as well. And that hole only gets wider and wider as we progress until it encompasses everything we're watching. Uh, it was an unreliable narrator being used as a lazy vehicle in combination with several deus ex machinas to arrive at a dismount that the audience would only groan at or be confused by. There was nothing Bateman-esque added to Kunis's character either. Rachel Newman's workout routine a penchant for a hairstyle, or maybe even some quirky, fun observations about pop music, anything that could have maybe made some sort of parallel to Bateman, none of that was there. It was all missing. It could have all been done. You know, it was a plug-in. If, if they plugged that in, too, it might have even been a fun addition to the franchise. But ultimately, Rachel Newman is as forgettable as she would have been had she really been the spook that she set out to portray is crazy that's the actual crazy part um <laughs> what i particularly enjoy about the existence of both of these films is that no matter who you are in the film industry or even if you're just someone who loves watching movies um you know that there every actor probably has at least one not so glamorous horror title on their resume and more often than not if an actor's first work was a horror film chances are you rewatching said film is akin to seeing embarrassing childhood photos. <laughs> uh, you know, you would feel mortified and horrified if your parents showed naked pictures of you to new friends. Imagine that times 10 and that's probably what the actors feel. Um, for instance, George Clooney looked like he had a dead possum on his head and returned to horror high. Uh, Brad Pitt played Rick in the Black Tickets episode of Freddy's Nightmares back in 1989. And he also played Billy in the King of the Road episode of Tales from the Crypt in 1992. Uh, neither were particularly memorable moments or roles. Although uh, Pitt's breakthrough role was also horror. He played Louis de Pont du Lac in Interview with the Vampire in 1994, which was also one of Kirsten Dunst's first films. My point here is that all these films are a beautiful reminder that horror has always been an integral part of the film industry because we all have to start somewhere. On The Late Night, we tried to raise awareness of good causes. There's a Canadian nonprofit organization called Soup Sisters, which encourages people to make their favorite soup and bring it to a person in need on March 3rd, which is also known as Soup It Forward Day. You can go to soupsisters.org to learn more about that. So we put the information for Soup Sisters into the episode comments for our podcast. If you go back into the late night's episode register, you'll also notice that we're adding links to the causes that we mentioned in the previous two episodes, and we're going to be doing that as well going forward. Up next is the Horror News, catering to science fiction, fantasy, and horror, available in digital and print. Submissions for Space and Time magazine will reopen on March 20th, and they're looking for short fiction in shun manuscript, with a word count of about 5,000 words, but they'll go up to a maximum of 10,000. For more information, please visit spaceandtime.net forward slash submissions hyphen fiction forward slash. Next, The Dark, a monthly online magazine, is currently seeking horror and dark fantasy fiction from 2,000 to 6,000 words. Simultaneous submissions are not allowed. For more information, visit thedarkmagazine.com 
forward slash submission dash guidelines forward slash. Next, Tales to Terrify is looking for short horror, dark fantasy, and disturbing fiction. Manuscripts can be up to 10,000 words, double-spaced, 12-point, Courier New, or Times New Roman, and in Microsoft Word or rich text format. Please include your author name, title, and word count on the first page. Simultaneous submission is allowed. For more information, please visit talestoterrify.com forward slash submissions forward slash. And Madness Heart Press has two submission calls. First, there's the annual Devouring Earth submission call. For 2020, the theme is kaijus and gigantic monsters with a minimum word count of 1,500 words. Submissions will close when enough stories have been collected or on April 30th, 2020. Finally, the annual Corners of the World submission for this year will feature Latin authors telling Latin horror stories as well as horror takes on Latin folklore and Mesoamerican mythology. To learn more, please visit madnessheart.press forward slash submissions forward slash. The Late Night, a horror podcast, is brought to you by Moner T. Lawrence. Find us at moneria.com and The Late Night Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.